Well, let's take a look at the book of Romans, since we don't have anything better to do, right? We're going to focus on sonship. Sometimes we take it for granted, and hopefully this morning we'll take a look at some passages that help us appreciate the significance of it. It occurs several times in uh, the New Testament. The concept does not present itself as much in the Old Testament in terms of God, sons of God. In fact, that concept was pretty foreign. But in the New Testament, it gives us a great picture of our relationship to the creator of all things. He's as intimate as a father. That's the significance of sonship. So we'll talk some more about it as we get into the passage, starting in verse 14. And this is particularly pertinent in the Roman Empire, concept of sonship, and we'll see in 17, inheritance, which stems from sonship. The concept of adoption was common in the first century, both in the Greek culture, with slightly different connotations than in the Roman culture, but it had some connotations there as well. And even the Jewish culture had a unique concept of adoption and sonship. So as we get through 14 through 17, we'll look at both those concepts. They're both related. So in the first century, people were acquainted with, obviously, the concept, not just the physical concept of sonship, but in terms of extended relationships as well. So we are in chapter 8 looking at the power available to live the Christian life. We've seen several principles in chapter 8 by itself. As we progressed, these build upon one another. In fact, we've already come to number 17, at least in the way that I've kind of brought them out. And a very important concept, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and that power, as it works itself out in our lives, we actually fulfill the requirement of the law, is what the verse tells us in the early verses there. And bringing everything together, number 18th, we find out that walking in the Spirit is the means by which God will sanctify us, or the means by which He will conform us more and more to His image, Or if we're talking about the concept of righteousness, we talked about us being declared righteousness, that's justification. Sanctification is God working out righteousness in our experience, in our lives. We're not bestowed righteousness with justification, we are declared righteous in standing, in position, but it works itself out as we walk in the Spirit, and the Bible calls that sanctification. 19, indwelling presence is the source of the power. Indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit gives us the enablement. The stress of chapter 7 is we can't do it on our own. We can't do it by self-effort. We can't do it even by trying to obey We're called to obey, but cannot in the flesh. The flesh is incapable. In fact, we saw that God does not improve the flesh. The flesh remains depraved. And we saw last time and the last two times the concept of letting it die, putting it, putting it to death or the deeds that come from it, putting it to death. 
Don't try to prop it up. Don't try to reform it. Old ideas, old lifestyles can't improve them. They got to be replaced. And the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit replaces them. And then last week, another important concept. I believe that sanctification is a total work of God. In other words, God is the one that affects it. But like salvation, salvation is a total work of God as well. But he does call upon us to believe. In other words, to trust that that is true, that he accomplished everything on the cross required for us to have a relationship with him. When we trust that, then we are born again, given a new nature. And it's through the new nature that God wants to work and that the Holy Spirit works through us. But as we believe for justification, for salvation, we also respond and we do participate in our sanctification. And it's similar, it's by faith as well. We trust, we believe, we reckon these things true. 6.11, reckon that we are dead in sin, the things that he just described in the chapter. Believe or trust or reckon that we are new creatures in Christ and from that new nature. And now believing that there's power in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now we can step out in faith believing that God will give us the enablement to fulfill what he calls us to do. So that was kind of the emphasis, a new principle that we looked at last time. I didn't bring it out. So chapter 8, we're in 12 through 17. We saw in 1 through 11, power, there's power available over the sinful flesh. The power comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that extends because of that relationship Because we are joined to God, we are in fact given a new nature. That new nature makes us sons of God in a real sense. 12 through 17 stresses that. 12 and 13 are a little transitional. We spent a lot of time, two weeks, basically talking about this obligation idea. Obligation to the spirit rather than to the flesh. And it's not in a legalistic sense, but it's in a sense of gratitude. I don't know if I adequately portrayed that. We might illustrate it. I've been using, well, not recently, but several months ago or maybe even years ago. I don't know. (laughs) And by the way, I kind of looked up where we're at. Some of you were asking. I kind of flippantly said years ago or something. We completed three years in the last Sunday of September. So we're on our fourth year in the Book of Romans. So we're out of the toddler stage. The obligation, uh, the illustration that I've used in the past to illustrate other things, but it applies here as well. It's as if someone, particularly you men, for you women, we could use a different analogy, but the men... Somebody gave you, with full ownership, full title, to a Lamborghini, $100,000 automobile, fully equipped with all of the bells and whistles and everything else. It is yours, totally yours to do with it whatever you want to. So you have it, and now what is your response? You didn't pay a dime for it. You didn't pay a penny for it. What is your attitude towards the giver of that gift? Don't you have a sense of, man, I, you know, 
I don't deserve this. That's grace. You don't deserve it, but he granted it to you. Got the keys, you got everything you need, brand new, you have the title. You have a sense within you of, I've got to take care of this thing. I've got to maintain it. I've got to keep it clean. I, you know, I've got to, I've got to take care of it in some way. And I'm overwhelmingly thankful to this individual that gave me this prized possession. That's the idea of obligation. We got a new nature. Now I got to maintain it. It's not, oh, I got to maintain it. It's, wow, look at what I've got, this new nature. And he's also supplied all of the tools of maintenance required so it doesn't take any effort to maintain it. I have a sense of this is what I need to do, a sense of obligation. I I feel this indebtedness to do this. That's the idea in this context. Is that better illustrated? Connie's still questioning. i got to think of a better... Okay, change the Lamborghini to a $10 million home in wherever. Place of your choice. Do you what? With, Kate comes with maids. And gardeners. And gardeners. Got it? Now you got it, right? All right. Let's move on to verse 14. Sonship of believers. Ellen. Is daughtership also applied in this? You now you're a son. Sorry. <laughs> well, keep in mind, us men are married to Jesus Christ as well. He's our bride. So, gender or whatever identification, dealing with spiritual things, eternal things, is a little bit different than this. You're his bride. Yeah. And that's where the confusion comes in because you guys have to take on the bride's role. Yes, we are brides. Yeah. We can do that. What did I say? You said he's our bride. No, uh, we are the bride. He is the groom, exactly. I mixed the two up. You knew what I meant, though. So sonship would include daughtership, but there's no biblical word that describes that relationship. So in verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, taking up from everything that we've talked about, the indwelling presence, implying we're walking in the Spirit. We're not walking by ourselves. We're walking hand in hand, step by step, with the imagery of Jesus leading us, the Holy Spirit leading us from internal guidance. So we are led. So the concept here, this is a continuous, ongoing walk on his path, in his direction, taking into account the things that he wants us to experience as we walk with him. So all those who are being led, and remember verse 9 and 10, if we do not have the indwelling presence of God, doesn't matter whether we go to church every Sunday, doesn't matter whether we try to be religious in some way, If we do not have the Spirit of God indwelling, then we do not belong to Him. We've already talked about that. So he's talking about those that have genuine salvation, that have the indwelling presence, that have a new nature for all who are being led by the Spirit, walking with Him. These are sons of God. So they go hand in hand. 
The moment we trust in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation, at that moment, we're infants, but we're sons. We're babies that need to grow up, but we are sons. And if you want to say daughters, that would be fine with the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about this concept, just to kind of get a biblical perspective on it and look at it from the broadest perspective. And not only the broadest perspective, but to see that we are part of a bigger work that God is doing. And there's a sense in which the Father is Father over all. And the reason I bring this out is because there's many scriptures that kind of indicate this broad sense. And understanding this, give I think, will give us, it gives me anyway, an appreciation for what it means to be a son of God. And again, I'll remind you in the Old Testament, this was a foreign concept. Foreign concept. There's a sense in which God is father over all of the creation in that he is the originator. All things come from him, and that would include all unbelievers. And from these verses, liberals have developed or perverted the concept of fatherhood and see all people in a sense of being children of God. Now, that is true, but then they leave it there and not extend it to that born-again experience of being born into a new family. And liberals will stop short of that sonship that's spoken of in in Romans chapter 8. So there is a sense, and some of the scriptures that some theologians use... I don't think Job 38.7 is this clear, but because it's a poetic statement, but it does kind of refer and involve the creation when the morning stars sang together. Now that's poetic. Stars don't sing, but there's a sense in which there's a, even a natural response to the creator amongst the non-living entities. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now that may refer, the stars may be an image of angelic creatures rather than the physical, but this is a passage that they use to broaden it. But I think the concept is there, even though this verse probably doesn't give it to you, strictly speaking. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. What's in view, and and they're part of the creation, by the way. The unseen world is part of God's creation. Angelic creatures are not eternal. They're created. So if it's a reference to angelic creatures and or the natural realm, there's a universal fatherhood that is imbued there. Acts 17.29, being then the offspring. These are unbelievers. Remember he's talking, Paul is talking to Athenians, and he's arguing Concerning a different worldview, a biblical worldview, he concludes by basically introducing Jesus Christ, because that's where he's heading. He is not permitted to necessarily complete the gospel presentation, but he has to lay groundwork because he's dealing with people that are totally unfamiliar with biblical concepts. And one of the concepts, in fact, he's quoting a poet, and it's inspired So he's admitting that there is a sense in which even 
unbelievers or all of humanity. And it's verses like this. There are some others as well. But it's these verses that a liberal will say, well, all are children of God. Well, there is a sense, a biblical sense, in which all are, but only in the sense of origin and beginnings. We all stem from God as creator. So being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Remember how he began? He began with... The whole conversation, I see that you all are very religious. You have all these temples. This is in Athens. And those of you that went to Athens, we saw some of those temples that Paul is pointing out. And he uses that. You philosophers, you think of yourself as so sophisticated and intellectual and scientific. But yet you are so religious. Look at all your temples. They couldn't deny it. And then from that, he follows into the idea of the unknown God that he wants to introduce them to, to describe. But in that context, being then, and he quotes one of their own poets, then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, etc. So there's this sense of every creature by origin is under the fatherhood of God. So creation, even unbelievers. And then in the Old Testament, there is a special sense of Israel. Not individuals, but Israel as a composite, as a nation. And some of the striking verses here, even before they're a nation in Exodus, remember this is before the plagues, before the Exodus from Egypt, So in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, Yahweh's son, Israel. The people that eventually, in fact, it takes many years before they are a full-fledged nation. I don't think they're a full nation until after the book of Joshua, until after they get the land. But they're still Israel, they're descendants of Israel and Abraham. But God views them, the descendants of Abraham, that corporate body, they're described by God himself, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Interesting phrase. So there's that sense. And that is the only sense. It's not in an individual sense. Individual Israelites didn't feel that sense of being children of God, except in this corporate, broad sense. Now, this is before they become a nation. And at the very end, Jeremiah is describing their destruction as a nation. And he gives them assurance that their standing as a nation has not changed. He's going to put them through captivity in order to discipline them. But all the same, there's going to come a day when he's going to bring them back into relationship. And he says, with weeping, they shall come. And by supplication, I will lead them. And by the way, where is this passage? Jeremiah 31. What else? What very important? New covenant. Very good. New covenant is in this chapter. He's laying the groundwork, and this is the beginnings of what he's going to spell out as the new covenant. 
With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. And then notice this phrase. For I am a father to Israel. And in Jeremiah, the father is going to spank his children. I am a father to Israel and Ephraim, which is another way of describing the children of Israel. And Ephraim is my firstborn. Notice what it says from the very beginning. Identical. The relationship has not changed. They're going to be spanked. They're going to be disciplined. But they are not cast out in a final or even eternal way. So that's Israel. What do you think is next after we talk about a general overall fatherhood in terms of creator and originator? We have Israel. What's the first thing we have in the New Testament? Nope. So obvious you can't even think of it. Jesus Christ. And this is a unique sonship different from all the others. Israel's is unique and different from all others. But Jesus Christ is son in the most intimate way in that he has the identical nature as God the Father. The identical nature is God the Father. He is God. That's unique from sonship of you and I as believers. Jesus Christ and a couple of passages, in fact several passages, 316 describing Jesus as his only begotten son. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses use that word begotten and come up with this idea that, well, Jesus had a beginning. He was born. He's not God. He's a creature, only begotten. The Greek word monogenes doesn't have the idea of to be born in a physical, natural sense. Yes, that's only begotten, the two words together. Monogenes, mono only. Only born. Only born, okay. Only begotten, only born. But combined together is not in the sense of physical birth per se, but in fact... In the New Testament, we have the pre-existence of Christ. Several passages that speak of his pre-existence. When he was born of a virgin, that's not the beginning. It's not the beginning of Jesus Christ. But it has more this idea of this unique sonship. Unique relationship, different from any other relationship. It's one of a kind. Only one of a kind. He's the only one of a kind. And he is monogenes from all eternity. It did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. And there are several verses that speak of Jesus as only begotten. 3.16 is one. I think one, what is it, One fourteen, I believe, is another one. Or the, the Greek word monogenes. There's the other ones. One fourteen, one eighteen. 3.18 are some of the other verses. That is unique and that's different. Our relationship is close and similar to this, to Christ, closer than it is to Israel. 
said, oh, really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, Christ's sonship is acknowledged by the Father, 317, is one of the passages. In fact, in that passage, Matthew 317, that's the baptism where Jesus baptized by John the Baptist, and then God the Father speaks of Jesus as only begotten. 17.5, again, God announces at the transfiguration the Father. So the Father acknowledges this sonship. Jesus himself identifies himself as Son, Matthew 11.27. Somebody look that one up. Let's read that one. You got it, Connie? All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the nor does anyone know the Father except Son, and he to whom the Son will to reveal. Jesus himself. The Son acknowledges himself as the Son. And then men, on several occasions, Matthew 16, 16, acknowledge that Jesus is Son of God in a unique sense, one-of-a-kind sense. Matthew 16, 16, Mark 15, 39, John 1, 34, and all of these are individuals, men acknowledging Jesus as Son. And this is during the earthly life of Christ. They got a glimpse, they got an idea, they understood, maybe not fully, but they had some understanding of this unique relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. And they understood this is unique and this is different from any other sonship that they were familiar with, whether it be physical within a family or Israel described as God's firstborn. Okay? So men acknowledge it. And there were some unbelieving Jews that uh, heard what he claimed. And because of what he claimed to be the son of God, they saw him claiming that unique sense. They saw him claiming to be God himself, sonship in the sense of equality, of same nature as God. And they pick up stones to stone him. Very unique. Even demons, when he cast out demons, demons acknowledged this unique relationship between the Son and the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, Matthew 8, 29. In fact, somebody read that one because it's kind of an interesting one. You got it? Dwayne, read it loud. Then suddenly they cried out. These are demons. Suddenly they cried out. What are we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here torment before the time? Okay, they acknowledge his deity. They acknowledge his unique relationship. And they knew that he was judge. And they're wondering if their time is up and their time of judgment has come. Have you come to torment us? And they acknowledge sonship here, unique sonship. And that brings us to the sonship that is very common in the New Testament, describing our relationship. And ours is not identical to Christ, but of all of these, Christ's sonship is the closest to ours. Not because it's individual instead of national? Yes, individual and personal. Personal. Israelites approached God on a more corporate level. Now, people had individual heart responses, but 
there was annual sacrifices, for example. There were sacrifices for the, the nation. So believers, let's take a look at some of the verses relating to that. Probably the key passage very early in the Gospel of John, 12 and 13. But as many as receive him, and that's receive him in salvation, it assumes belief. We receive him by trusting. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Now, the word here, there's three words for children, or three words for, what might we say, sons, I guess you could say. And we'll get to that. The word here, technon, that's a child, um, usually a, older than a toddler, occurs several times, I can't remember, 99 times, I think, in the New Testament, very often of young children. But it can be a child all the way up to adulthood. So he gave us the right, so we become children, children of God. Even those who believe in his name, there you go, there's the means, by believing in his name, who were born. This is a rebirth. This goes against the liberal idea. This is a spiritual birth. And if a person does not have a spiritual birth, he does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not have eternal life, he does not have salvation. But at the instant of heart response, of trust, we become born again. And Jesus is going to explain a little bit more of that in John chapter 3. Who were born not of blood, so this is not a physical thing. It's not a genetic, biological thing. Not of blood. In fact, it's not even of the will of the flesh. You can't just determine to become a believer. You can't use philosophy. You can't use science. You can't use intellect, nor the will of the flesh. There's the flesh again. Nor of the will of man by willpower, but it's by God. Salvation is totally of him. We simply receive it and believe it. But it makes us children of God. And the reason I bring this passage out is because when we're going to get to a different Greek word that that is different. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers. Speaking of the Ephesians... In fact, this whole chapter, the early verses in there, talk about them being dead, or they were dead, but now they're alive in Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. In other words, you're outside of the family, you're outside of even the nation, but you are fellow citizens, spiritual citizens, with the saints, with believers, those declared holy, and are of God's household within the household of God. And that leads to the next concept, 15 and 16, and that'll give us an additional insight and an expansion of what happened when we became believers or when we became sons. For you have not received a spirit of slavery. I think he's taking us back to the law. And when you're under the law... The law is like a taskmaster, a a slave owner, but it doesn't give you the capability or the enablement to be able to respond rightly for you have not received the spirit of slavery. That spirit of slavery leads to fear, 
leading to fear again. We have died to that, Romans 6. We have a new relationship, leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. And the word here is huyas, sons, huyas, huyas, there you go. Adopted as sons. Now, I want to take some time to explain this concept here. In fact, this is one word, adoption as sons. I'll show you what it looks like in a moment. But there's a contrast here, first of all. Contrast with what we were before. We were slaves of the law. We were under, even though you might say as Gentiles, we're not nationally under the law. We are under God's standards, God's requirements, and we fail, we fall short, and we stand condemned. But we have a transformation, a change from slavery to a new freedom that includes a new slavery, but it's a, it's a slavery of freedom. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, one word. So we have two words. We have the idea of a, the spirit of, and then another idea, adoption of. Now, notice there's at least like three possibilities here. Notice all of the, the two words where you have not received a spirit. It's not capitalized. And obviously it's not because the Holy Spirit is not a slave master. So the spirit of slavery, in other words, a temperament or a disposition of slavery. The New American Standard sees this parallel So it didn't capitalize, but you have received a spirit of adoption. So the possibility is from one disposition, inward quality, to a freeing quality, a human spirit of adoption. Do you see that? That's the way the New American Standard takes it. Now, it is also possible to see you have received a spirit capitalized. And personally, I prefer to see the spirit, the one that produces the adoption because of parallel passages and because of the context. He's just been talking about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Do you see that? Your version has it capitalized? Yeah. I just do. Okay. Great. You have the, you have the more inspired version. Now, there are some commentators that see the Holy Spirit in both, but they have to kind of stretch it a little bit in terms of the Spirit overseeing the law kind of idea, and through the law, we are slaves. But I prefer to see the first one as the human experience or the human disposition, human spirit, and then the second one as the Holy Spirit, because we have received. The Holy Spirit as well. Okay? So you have received a spirit of adoption. And while you were done, Connie, I, I pointed out this is one word, adoption as sons. One word in the Greek text. Again, is it only sons or is it children? It's sons. In fact, it's mature sons. Okay, here's, here's the background. And I'll give you the word in a moment here. The background, uh, we have a Greek background of adoption. I'm going to kind of talk about this adoption 
including the idea of sons, but adoption was not infrequent in the Greek culture. But in the Greek culture, an adoption meant that you had the full rights of a member of a family, and you were put at, on a status as the same as the natural-born children. And it emphasized the family relationship. So now I have a new family. I might have been an orphan, but it was also possible to even adopt someone from another family into your family. You could adopt a poor child, may have been languishing or whatever, and you're benevolent. You could adopt them into your family because you had more means and you could take care of that child. Or amongst relatives, that was not uncommon in a Greek culture. But it was moving from one family to the other family. In uh, in the Roman case, that was true. And that's why Kuhn just adopted us. Right. Yeah, and that's the case with the Roman adoption. So there was a different situation in... Plotios is ex- explaining exactly. In the Roman situation, you could you could have a wayward son or an undesirable son for whatever reason, and the father could choose to find another son and almost replace the natural-born son and give him more rights, as Plotios is describing, than even the natural-born children. And the name would go to that adopted son. The property would be predominantly for that adopted son could be taken away from the natural born if he was a wayward son. That's under the Roman system. They also had a ceremony where all of the sons had a public ceremony in the Roman Forum where when that son reached the age of adulthood, and it could have varied, probably somewhere in their teens or even 30 years old, when the child became of age, he would be declared adopted or an adopted son using this concept here. And at that point, he would take the full name and the full inheritance of the family, or it would be his and it would be at the point of coming of age. So it was looked at as more, still a family relationship, but it was almost one step uh, greater than this family relationship. I think Paul has both of these images in mind in the passages where he uses the word, where not only do we become a part of a new family, but now we also have come of age. And now we have, in a special way, access to all that God has in terms of an estate, in terms of an inheritance. And he's going to step into that when we get to verse 17. We won't get there today. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a concept as well. We have some interesting examples. Do you remember Moses? was adopted into the Egyptian culture, into the Egyptian family. Moses was an adopted baby. His natural mother, now they didn't, the Egyptians were not aware of it at the time, but his natural mother, through the circumstances, became his maid, I guess you could say. But Moses was an interesting uh, adoption situation. 
Remember Esther. Mordecai was what to Esther? It was her uncle. And apparently her parents had died. He takes her in. He raises her. She was an adopted child. So this was the case amongst the nation of Israel as as well. The, The concept of taking one that is not natural, natural born, into a family. Now, another difference of the uh, adoption in the Old Testament and sonship, maybe I should say sonship instead of adoption. Sonship, the firstborn, had a double inheritance, which was different from the Roman and the Greek. And adoption was into a family. Another interesting one that you would want to look up is Mephif, how do you pronounce it? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Uh, let me give you the reference there. Second Samuel, I'll let you read this one on your own. We're running out of time here. Second Samuel 9, first 13 verses. Remember David? Well, Mephibosheth, you remember him? Yeah. Tell me about him. Jonathan's son. Yeah, Jonathan's son. So he's a descendant of Saul. Okay. Da- nurse when they killed them all. Yeah, they killed them all. He was the one that was preserved, but remember he was crippled, he was handicapped, that's why you remember him, right? Because you work amongst them. Anyway, here is one that is really an outcast in terms of the kingdom, and one that the family was rejected, now Jonathan had died already, so here we have a person that is somewhat in need, David adopts him in the family, and because he what? Because he's John. Because he's Jonathan's son. Yeah, and he cared for him. So here's a, an example of taking somebody that was in great need, couldn't care for himself, and now he's eating daily at the king's table with all the full rights of natural-born sons. So we have examples of adoption in the Old Testament. Here's the term, and we have a combination the red part there is the sun part. I have a hard time pronouncing it. Huias, which is an adult sun. And then it has the latter part that is joined to it, plus thesia. And it has the idea of to place something into a position or in a place or to install something. And here is that Roman idea of having a ceremony where a son is installed into a new status, you might say, into a status of adulthood. So the son, an adult son, installed, and that's the word adoption as sons. You see the two parts here? You can say adoption with the preceding letters there that refer to sonship. That's the word that we have in this concept, adoption as sons, or placement, you might say, as sons, placement into a new family, installed into a family as adults, full adulthood. And New American Standard translates it, adoption as sons, one word. And it only occurs about four times, I think, in the New Testament, It's done by the Holy Spirit, and I think we have a description of it. Uh, We'll wait till next week. I'd like to look up Galatians 4. In fact, you might look it up, and also Ephesians 1, 5. Because it gives a description of it in that passage. 
and it talks about a child that is under tutors until he reaches adulthood, and at that point he is declared or installed, you might say, as a full son. And when the Bible speaks of us as children of God, it also has many passages where the uh, word huios starts with an H. H H-U-I-O-S. How would you pronounce that? That's what it's speaking of. And it's speaking of us. God views us as adults. Views us fully members of a family. And we become part of that inheritance. And that's where he's going to enter in. So some neat concepts there. By which we cry. Now we can cry out to God the Father as if he is our daddy. Abba. Father. That's a good place to... It's hard to comprehend. Yep. It's the most intimate relationship that you can have. Father, Son. Say that again. Yes. God the Father. Yes. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And it's a permanent relationship. It was an established state. Before. It's legal, and there's no there's no divorce, if you will. There's no breaking of that legal bond. Jeremy, why don't you close for us today? You've been pretty quiet. <laughs> so we just praise you for your perfect plan, Lord. Lord, reveal that to us, Lord. Just take uh, our sons and daughters. Open this this week to let us know our worth. Remember that. Helps to empower the Holy Spirit and the Lord. And, uh, for you, it helps to be lights in the world as you go out to the world where your light will shine on.